We are almost two-thirds of the way through our study in Romans, and we barely scratched the surface of the book. Um, I told y'all a lot of times that, uh, that this is my favorite book if I had to pick one. Love them all. Don't get it wrong. But uh, this is probably my favorite book in, in Scripture. And I, I truly believe if you <clears throat> if you understand the, Ro- the book of Romans, you will understand your Bible. If you combine it with Hebrews, you really understand your Bible, right? But we're in the midst of a study in Romans. We're in chapter 11. We're in another one of these sections where um, there's a lot of opinions about. But I think the main message of today from this text is pretty obvious in the text. So, uh, and beneficial and a needed warning um, for all of us. But we'll set it in context in a minute. This morning I'm going to read from verses 11 in chapter 11 down through verse 24. Started this section showing that Israel's rejection not final. Verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, the Jews' salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. There's a plan at work here. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion or their fullness mean? Thinking that something to come. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has power to graft them in again. And if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we look into your word. We pray that your spirit would attend your word, the preaching of your word, that you would apply it to our hearts that you would work in us individually.
according to the needs of each heart. We pray for repentance and faith, either initially or grown in grace. Or we just look to you. This is your word. Your spirit must apply it. So that's what we cry out for. Speak to us through your word. And lead us in the ways of righteousness. Help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit, Lord. And help us to hear it as your word in the power of the Spirit. And may you take it and use it powerfully in each one of our lives. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I read a story about H.A. Ironside, who was... Uh, early 20th century pastor of Moody Church, big, uh, prestigious uh, church. And he was worried about pride in his own life. He was convicted, he was worried uh, that he was slipping into pride because of that great assignment in that big church. So he asked a friend what he could do about it, an older friend. And the friend said this, Make a sandwich board with the plan of salvation in Scripture on it and put it on and walk through the business district of Chicago for a whole day. He could have said no, right? But he followed his friend's humiliating advice. And after he got home, he took off the sandwich board and he caught himself thinking this. I bet there's not another person in Chicago that would be willing to do a thing like that. <laughs> Spiritual pride is a constant danger for every one of us. It's one of the main characteristics of the Pharisee. It's, it is the reason for the parable of the tax collect, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee thanked God that he wasn't like the tax collector. In pride, looking to himself. Don't I do this, and don't I do that, and don't I do this. His eyes were rolled inward, and he was eat up with pride. And the tax collector wouldn't so much as look to heaven, and he's the one who went home justified by saying, God had mercy on me, a sinner. But Stephen Cole points out this. He says, how many times have we read that parable and thought, I thank God that I am not like that Pharisee. See, today Paul is speaking to the Gentiles. In verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And he's continuing to speak to the Gentiles. And he warns. <clears throat> Look at this. In verse, you want to know what the commands are in this section? Look in verse 18. Do not be arrogant. Look at verse 20. Do not become proud, but fear. And 25 we'll look at next time. Lest you be wise in your own sight or don't be wise in your own sight. Paul is speaking to the Gentiles and telling them not to think they are better than the Jews just because the Jews were broken off and they were grafted in. And you know, that might be 
probably a natural response of Gentiles in the church because they had probably gotten used to hearing from the Jews about how they were dogs and unclean and all of this. You know, spiritual pride was a big problem in the Jewish community. It represented or exemplified by the Pharisees. So it might have been just sort of this natural turn to then say, yeah, yeah, look at that. Look at you, broken off, and I am grafted in. I must be more important, better, loved more. Paul's warning them not to think that way. So this is a warning against spiritual pride and an exhortation to true humility. If you remember, we're, we're in the section that a lot of people, some people even fear to read Romans 9. They won't read it, right? In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is explaining how God is working out his salvation. Paul is explaining how it's going to come to be, that there'll be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around God's throne. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And the Gentiles being the world outside of the Jewish world. And Paul has told us that the word of God has not failed, even though only a remnant of the Jews have believed and most of them have rejected their Messiah. They are responsible for their willful unbelief, and they've been hardened in response, in judgment. He talked about God's uh, election, the glorious doctrine of election. <clears throat> I hope if you understand the doctrine of election that that is your opinion of it. The glorious doc doctrine of election, the magnification of God's undeserved favor and grace in Christ. So election of Jews and Gentiles, unbelief, none deserved mercy, all would have remained in unbelief apart from the grace of God. But he said there's a remnant chosen by grace. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 11. Didn't wash away their responsibility. Most of them had chosen not to believe. But there was a remnant chosen by grace. And God is using their unbelief and the judgment on their unbelief to turn and save Gentiles. So while many Jews receive just judgment, many Gentiles receive salvation. And you might be, be thinking that that could really lead to pride. So Paul's warning them not to think that the reason they were saved is because they were better or superior to the Jewish people. The only difference between Jew and Gentile, between saved and lost, is grace. Grace. So today we're looking at verses 17 through 24. I titled it Pride and Grace. You might have thought I was going to talk about something else when you saw that title. No, we're in Romans. We, we do and we'll talk about that. Pride and grace from 17, verse 17, 24. <clears throat> Just coming out of this text and applying it to our own lives. Main point, cultivate humility by embracing both justice and grace. Tremble and trust in Christ alone. We should never lose that trembling awe before God. And that resting in Christ and knowing that it was all undeserved and none of it's because of me. And we'll see that. But first we're going to look at Paul's strong warning against spiritual pride. And just quickly sort of remember what we talked about last week. 
Paul is bringing forth uh, this metaphor of the olive tree. And remember, he's still talking to the Gentiles here. So he brings this forth with a purpose. We'll talk about that in, in, in a minute. But the olive tree here is a picture of God's one people. It's a picture of the vessels of mercy that he's talking about in chapter 9. And it's holy because the root is holy. Yes, the patriarchs were the human root, the first of the chosen people, but we look to a true and greater root for true acceptance and righteousness, which is Christ. And the branches, really, it'll, it'll keep us from veering off into more than this is meant to do. The branches here recommend, uh, represent two groups. And he's speaking to groups here. Right? Jews and the Gentiles. And the branches are all connected by faith. There's not an unbelieving branch on the tree here. That's why I said this is, this is talking about the vessels of mercy. This is talking about true Israel. This is talking about invisible church. But the whole tree is a gracious planting by God. So, this is where Paul's going with this. So there's no place for pride. On either side, but he's specifically directing his guns in this passage at the Gentile. This may be helpful to you. But the main purpose for this illustration of the olive tree is to use it as a warning against spiritual pride of the Gentiles. That's why it's here. It's to be used as a warning against the spiritual pride of the Gentiles. Spiritual pride creeps in when we forget that salvation is by grace alone. Not because of anything worthy or good in us. We all deserve rejection, condemnation, not acceptance and salvation. And if we have acceptance and salvation, it's not due to anything in us. It's due to His grace. If I grasp that and walk in that, it will keep me from this dangerous thing called pride, which is at the root of all sin. Spiritual pride creeps in when we forget that salvation is by grace alone. And listen, Paul's already sown that territory, hasn't he? Remember in chapter 1, the second part of chapter 1, up through the first part of chapter 3, which culminates in none is good. Not one. All have turned aside. None seek God. The law was given to hush our mouths so that we might humbly bow before God and receive his salvation. And that salvation is in Jesus Christ and him alone. So that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone. And the soul that he justifies, he sanctifies. We've seen that in Romans, and now we're seeing that redemption purchased by Christ applied and kind of explained to us. But salvation is by grace and grace alone. And Paul uses this metaphor, this illustration, this figure of the olive tree to warn the Gentiles against spiritual pride. Look in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, look, he takes his first shot at pride, doesn't he? And you, a wild olive shoot. Coming, in other words, you shouldn't be here. This is not your native tree. He says, 
If some branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, see some branches being broken off, that pruning of that tree that was pictured in Jeremiah and other places in the Old Testament. Don't have time to go into that. It's not the purpose of the passage. You, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You have been grafted into this Jewish salvation. This Jewish Messiah that was promised from all through the Old Testament. All the promises and covenants and things, we've seen that as we've been in Romans in chapter 9, were given to the Israelites, were given to the Jews. And though many, most of them rejected it, it's not that there's a new thing and a new salvation over here. The Gentiles have been grafted into that salvation. Salvation is of the Jews. So Jew, you Gentiles were grafted in among the others, the Jewish branches. And you all share then in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You are sharing in the true salvation that comes through Christ, the Jewish Messiah. The Jew is not a Jew outwardly, but one inwardly. We've seen that in chapter 2. All sorts of things we could say here. But he's saying, look, realize who you are. Realize where you came from. Realize what you deserve. We'll see that later. And realize that you are the ones that were grafted in. Yes, some were broken off in judgment, but you are grafted in. Jews were broken off and Gentiles grafted in so that in that one tree, that one people of God, we have one new man made up of Jew and Gentile through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. And he, he, he says that quickly. You were broken. Some were broken off. You were grafted in. You are not. You shouldn't be here. You are in a wild, wild olive root. And here's the application he's getting through to them. These are the commands of the whole passage. There's no other. Commands. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not be arrogant toward the Jews. Do not be proud of yourself. Do not think you're something. Do not think you're better. Do not be arrogant. Don't think that the difference is you. It's not you who made the difference. It's God. It's Christ. The root supports you. If you have branches of a tree connected to the trunk and down into the roots, down into the nourishment, drawing that up out up into those branches, the branches don't support themselves. The branches are the fruit bearers of the tree. So if, if you've been grafted in, branches don't hop off one tree and get grafted into another one because they decide to do so. Salvation is of the Lord. And rightly understood, salvation is of the Jews. So do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not think you're better. Do not think it was you that made the difference. Do not think that you're more worthy because you're connected to the same root. You're in the same people. You're part of the same family now to draw this nourishment from this root through those the history, through the covenants, through the patriarchs, into Christ, supported by His grace and power. 
I mean, Jesus told the, the Samaritan woman that salvation was of the Jews, right? That's basically what Paul's telling me. You just realize you are, you are tapped into some riches that were not your own. You are tapped into these promises and covenants and blessings that were promised through Abraham and through Abraham comes the seed of Christ and all in him. This should produce humility, not arrogance. And so we have a in, in verse 19 a, a speaker, a hypothetical Gentile that's going to say, he says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You, see, you hear the pride in that? You had to be exiled so that I could get in. Because I am something special. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Paul sort of agrees. He said, that is true. But you need to understand why that happened and what that means. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And it's not that they believed and then they didn't believe and they were broken off. Nobody was accepted into, justified, and then lost. We've already seen that in chapter 8. Remember, we're dealing with roots here. One group cut off, another one grafted in. They were broken off because of unbelief. You stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. Why, why would that be? You stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. Why would that be a, a reason not to become proud? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith didn't come from you. When it says in, in Ephesians 2 that salvation is a gift of God, it's talking about the entire grace by faith salvation, including the beginnings of it, which is being brought from death to life, being born again, having faith. That is all a gift of God. So to take this glorious, gracious gift of Christ Jesus and to then brag as though you earned it, and you're better than another. You see how wicked that is. See how evil that is. Do not become proud. Do not act as though you didn't receive this as a gift. Do not act as though you didn't deserve exact opposite. You left to your own resources, would have been left in unbelief and idolatry, and would have reaped the results of that. But God. But God. So do not become proud. Seeing God's, listen, what he's saying to the Gentiles is seeing God's judgment on the Jews should inspire fear in you. The fear of the Lord, not pride. And he, he's going to break that out a little bit more as, as he moves forward. Look at verse 21. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, the ones that, naturally speaking, should be there, the ones to whom the promises were given, if he didn't spare the natural branches, what in the world makes you think he's going to spare you? The unnatural, wild olive root that was grafted into all this grass. What's the point? God is no respecter of persons. 
Do not become proud. If he judged their unbelief, he'll judge your unbelief. Beware of the judgment that follows pride. So he says at the end of that, he says, neither will he spare you. We're going we're gonna to just go ahead and jump. Look at the end of, um, end of verse 22. And then we're going to come back to this and, and wrap it back together. But it says, otherwise, if you, if you don't continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. You too will be cut off. Wow, what does that mean? So you have believers who are connected to the tree that go from faith to unbelief and then they're cut off. No. No, you have a people group and a people group and, and this people group is being explained to them why this people group was for the most part judged and excised from the tree and how they got in on this salvation. But if this people group turns back to unbelief and idolatry, this is not, we know that individual just, God glorifies everyone he justifies. We've seen that already in chapter 8. Nobody's losing their salvation. Nobody is connected to this tree apart from faith. Nobody's losing their salvation. We want to be careful that we don't press this grape too hard to try to wring what's not in the warning here. Is he talking about individuals here? Some want to say yes, and I, I think the correct answer is no. That's not the point here. We got it. We really, this is a country boy's thinking. We really got to be careful not to overmilk the cow. That gets dangerous for the cow and you if you, if you hurt them. We got to be careful when interpreting this metaphor. This entire section, like I said, is dealing with two groups. It answers the question of how the Gentiles got into the Jewish salvation. It's a warning against ethnic spiritual pride. It's not saying that anyone once had faith in salvation and lost it, or that there was this general connection. In this text, it's not dealing with that. I'm sure that there is visible and invisible church and going all that. Oh, this is about. It's a general warning against Gentile pride. So I'm going to give you a couple of quotes and then I'm going to move on. One of which is Calvin. This cutting off is what he means by excision. Calvin says, The excision of which he speaks could not apply to individuals whose election is unchangeable based on the eternal purpose of God. It's a general illustration to two groups of people, and it's specifically being used to the one group, the Gentiles, to be a warning against pride. Douglas Moo, I got this on, excuse me, this is a longer quote on slide. He says this, Paul skillfully mixes theology and exhortation in this paragraph. His olive tree metaphor makes an important contribution to our understanding of the people of God, and that's true. Now watch this. It is notoriously easy to squeeze more theology out of such a metaphor than it is intended to convey. But basic to the whole metaphor is the unity of God's people, a unity that crosses both historical and ethnic boundaries. And the basic point of the metaphor is that where, where there is only one olive tree whose roots are firmly planted in Old, Old Testament soil and whose branches include both Jews and Gentiles. The olive tree represents the one people of God 
saved solely by grace. Hopefully that helps you understand what Paul's doing here with this passage. But all that use of the metaphor and all that that theology there that's in the midst of this is, is Paul speaking to the Gentiles and warning them against pride. And we have to be careful because if we, if we say to ourselves, I don't struggle with pride, we have just revealed that we do. I'll let you think about that. But look, he transitions from this warning to pointing to a sufficient remedy in verses 22. And we're really just going to kind of mention uh, verses 23 and 24 here. How about this quote? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved somebody as special as me. <laughs> saved a wretch like me. Is it bad for John Newton to own the fact that he was a wretch? No, it's necessary. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. See, the answer to pride is humility, and humility is bred by understanding the gospel, which produces in us, if we understand the gospel, a fear of the Lord. Which is not a slavish fear. that we are, We're always cringing, thinking he's going to whip us. It's a, it's, a serve, it's a familial fear. Or it's a fear. It's a family fear. It's the fear that a child has of a good father who loves that father and, and grieves when they disappoint that father and seeks to honor and glorify that father. All of that flows from humility. Look what Paul says in verse 22. Now he says, Note the kindness and the severity of God. That word note means consider, notice, behold. In other words, what he's saying is, he's like, think about this. Muddle over this. Let this be in your mind. Never lose this picture. See, a lot of people in the church today only want to talk about the kindness of the Lord. The gospel makes no sense if you don't also talk about the severity or justice. The gospel is just a life coach without the truth of the truth of sin and, and failure to keep God's law. But he says, notice, consider, think it over, look at, point, think about these two things. What he's saying is, if you'll put these two things in your mind, this is going to be an antidote to pride, to spiritual pride. Kindness and severity. Just, you can, kindness, think grace, mercy. Severity, justice. Nobody's treated unjustly by God. We all deserve condemnation. But he's like he's saying grace to you Gentiles through faith and just judgment on Jewish unbelief. See, God's kindness is amazing. It should be amazing to us like it was to John Newton. And I'll let you go read his biography. The author of Amazing Grace. It wasn't a yawning subject to him. Because he knew he deserved severity. And he got grace. So it humbled him and made him very useful to the Lord. Paul's already shown us in Romans, it's grace that makes the difference. It's grace that brings one to faith. It's grace that helps us understand that God has had mercy on us. Listen to me. Even sitting here this morning, even if you don't know Jesus yet, 
God has not given you what you deserve. Yeah. Because naturally speaking, we are all born into this world with the guilt and corruption from Adam and expressing that in our own actual sins. We are born into this world deserving wrath and condemnation from the God that we have rejected and sit on. None of you listening to me this morning are in hell. Therefore, you haven't received what you deserve yet. And in God's mercy, you are hearing the gospel preached, maybe weekly, but it, it is, it is. I don't mean every week, I mean not strongly. Never mind. It's funny, sometimes you have to shoot a rabbit very quick. <laughs> We all, as Ian is so fond of telling us, when we ask him how he's doing, he will say, better than I deserve. So I'll go up to him and say, I know you're doing better than you, than you deserve. Now tell me how you're really doing. Uh, but the truth of the matter is we're all doing better than we deserve. We are all getting breath and heartbeats and life. And we're all, at least here and maybe over the live stream, having an opportunity to hear the grace of God. What does that mean? How do we get grace? How do we not get condemnation but get grace? If condemnation is what we deserve, how do we get grace? Our default thinking is to say, well, if I'll just turn and be good enough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean up my mess. And so I'm going to turn and be good enough so that my good works will outweigh my bad and in the end he'll accept me. That's not going to do it. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't fix it ourselves. We must have a Savior who is not us. We've shown that we're not it. Okay? That's why the Scripture is such good news and amazing grace is such good news. When it says that Christ died for our sins. Think about that. The very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God taking on true human nature, coming to live under his own law. And he fulfilled that law perfectly. He was perfectly righteous. He fulfilled all righteousness for the glory of the Father and for the good of his people. And then he took our guilt upon himself and died to pay the penalty. And he hung on that cross until he said, it is finished. Being God and man, he could take the wrath of God for our sin and drink that cup dry before he left that cross. And so I'm not going to look at Jesus and say, well, it's not quite finished yet. There's a few things I have to do. Salvation is a free gift if you will have it because Christ has lived for us. He has died for us. And Lynchpin, he's been raised from the grave. And look at me. You can't prove he didn't. And the weight of the evidence proves that he did. Christ died for our sins, the scripture says. He was buried and he was raised the third day. What must I do to be saved, the Philippian jailer said? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent. Turn from unbelief and pursuing your own way and pursuing sin. Have a change in the direction of your soul that results in a change in the direction of your life, your heart being circumcised by the Spirit so that you turn and receive Christ because He's given you a new heart. You now grieve over your sin and want to be free from it, but you're trusting Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Christ took the severity. Look at that. 
kindness and severity. Christ took the severity that we deserve so that we can have the kindness that we deserve. Christ took the condemnation so that we could have the mercy and grace. Christ took the rejection so that we could be accepted. You will never even scratch the surface of how much he suffered for you. Either in your understanding or in your life. Especially in our understanding. The best I can do for you is, is try to imagine what it would be like to be in hell forever. That's what he took. And because he's God and man, he drank that cup dry. God loved the world in this way. Kids, you probably know it as God so loved the world. But, but truly, it should read, in this manner, God loved the world. Or God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised, to reign and return for us. God gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not experience severity, but shall have eternal life. Are you convicted about your sin? If so, turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. He receives all who come to him. Weak faith is enough faith if it's in the right place. And the right place is Christ. See, if, if you truly understand the gospel, you know that this is, you deserve condemnation. You deserve the severity side. But because of Christ, you've received kindness, grace, and mercy. And this is what humbles us. See, legalism will never humble you. Legalism will make you stinking proud. Because you're doing it. You're getting it done. You're good enough. You got it. Right? Here's what the legalist does in his own mind. The legalist waters down the law as it applies to him and magnifies it as it applies to us. Oh, you get stern judgment from the legalists, but they'll never hold themselves to the same standard. The legalists will bite you really quick when you cross them. And they will tell you just how much you deserve it. They will reject you out of hand. They will be like the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm not like But the one who gets the gospel will be like this pastor. No pride, all humility, looking at the ground. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Resting in God's mercy and extending mercy to others. He took our severity. truly understand the gospel you will look without fear at the severity of God see it for what it is and then rejoice that your Savior took that you'll be amazed by his mercy and kindness extended to you because your Savior took that he died for our sins 
And if we really get the gospel, humility is going to be a characteristic in our speech, in our actions, in our humanity. And yes, we have to grow in it, right? Sanctification. Some of us revert back and have to confess it. But meditate on, note these things, the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, and that's what they deserve. Kindness to you, but that's not what you deserve, provided you continue in his kindness. The gospel produces humility, and humility brings great reward. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And I'll just bet you $100,000 that when you see that word riches, you quickly think of money. Stop it. The poorest person on earth is eat up with riches if they have Christ. And the richest person on the planet without Christ is a pauper. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose his soul? The riches of his grace, honor in his, in his court and before his judgment, and eternal life with him flow out of this humility that is willing to receive this gift of Christ. And then in verse 23, just the responsibility of humility. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. There are a lot, a lot of warnings like that in Scripture. And those warnings are effective in the life of the believer to produce perseverance. We see the warning. And by God's Spirit working in us, we turn from what would cut us off. It might take a while sometimes. But true faith, here it is, true faith perseveres. False faith turns from God because it had an evil, unbelieving heart and don't have time to go there. But Hebrews 3.14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is how we know we've come to share in Christ because, yes, some days it feels like we're hanging on by our fingernails, but by God's grace even that is used to grow us. But if we have faith in Christ, if it's true faith, faith that came from God, He will preserve it. Even when it feels like we don't have any, He will preserve it so that we will continue in this trusting in Jesus. See, He finishes the work He starts. And if you'll read the parable of the soils, there's some what looks like conversion in there that's not real, that falls away when the testings of life come. And listen, bring it. i, I got to go. I, gotta, I really got to move. But whenever you hear some of these darlings on, on YouTube or TV or radio or blogs or whatever telling you how they once were a Christian but they found it to be lacking and have turned away, look at me, they never were. They never were. They don't understand. It's an evil heart of unbelief that caused us to turn from the living God. They made an outward and external profession, but it wasn't real. Because if we, look at that verse again, if we have come to know Christ, Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm from the end till the end. And if we don't hold our confidence, it shows that we hadn't come to know Christ. So Paul is saying, 
Listen to this. Let the kindness and severity promote humility in you so that you rely upon God's kindness and you persevere in his kindness, showing to have true interest in Christ. That's what proves it. And then he ends the section here in verses 23 and 24. We'll talk. We're going somewhere with that. Even if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And we've already said that's not individuals having faith and losing it and getting it back. His plan, his plan for these two people groups, right? We know there's coming a revival among the Jewish people. We've talked about that, and we'll see more about that. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in again. God has the power to graft them in. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? There's coming a day when it won't just be a remnant of Jews who believe. But majority. And there's coming a day when the last of the Gentiles will come in and maybe they turn to one part of this picture. But we'll talk more about that last time. But this section ends with a note of hope. But what is our application as we quickly move to that? Watch out for spiritual problems. Now I want to do something. I'm going to break this up just a little bit, and then we'll look quickly again at the remedy, and we'll be done. I want to I want to warn us as a corporate body, as a church, to watch out for spiritual pride. The Reformed Church treads on dangerous ground, and a lot of times we get puffed up about it, and we look down on others because of it. I'm glad I'm not like that Armenian, we might say to ourselves. Now listen, I'm not trying to pick a fight with that. Okay? I'm just saying, there's knowledge puffs up. A lot of you are studying a lot of stuff that you're not applying, and you're getting starting to think a little bit. I'm speaking in general. I don't have anybody in mind in this building. But we have to, as a church, beware of spiritual pride, thinking we're the only game in town. We're the only one God's using. That we have all our ducks in a row. Because I'm not here to tell you we don't. Always reforming means something. <laughs> right? But then individually, listen, every day, the world, the flesh, and the devil is seeking to turn your gaze from Christ to yourself. <laughs> And you might hear in your heart things like this. Well, you are better than them. You're still in the blood. You are special. You deserve better. You are great. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's Joel Osteen. Um, <laughs> no. I'm making a point with that, by the way. You, look at it. You are the reason you were saved. God chose you because of you. He looked down the time of time and saw that you would choose him, so he chose you. Nothing was thinking Christ. Our eyes must be kept on Christ. Our hearts must be kept on Christ. Our minds must be drew, dwelling in the fact that there is severity and kindness. And what we deserved was the severity, but we got the kindness. We've broken his law in thought, word, and deed, but he kept it for us, and he died for our sins. So we have salvation and grace and acceptance in him. So keep 
your hearts, focus, devotion, faith, fixed on Jesus. Look at me. When you find yourself getting proud, you know you're focused in the wrong place and you're comparing yourself to the wrong person. But if your eyes are on Christ and you're comparing yourself to Him, nothing but humility can flow from that if you really understand it. He's the perfect one, not you. He's the Savior, not you. He's the reason you have grace. When we get our eyes under the sun, refer you back to the series we did in Ecclesiastes, when we start comparing ourselves with one another, we can find somebody to be proud of. But we have to be really, really, really careful. When you get proud, you are focused in the wrong place and comparing yourself to the wrong person. So church, watch out for spiritual pride. Individuals in the church, watch out for spiritual pride. How do we address it? Well, I've already said kindness and severity. So first, look to the law. Never stop looking to the law. Never stop rehearsing the Ten Commandments. Never stop seeing Christ in them yet. But never stop seeing how you fail. You've not loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've not loved your neighbor as yourself, even if you're a Christian. See, that will keep you depend, humble and dependent upon Christ. But we need that convicting ministry. Now, we're not under the law, and we don't have to keep it to be accepted by God, but our love response to God should be a striving to keep His law and a hatred of sin. First, look to the law and see it rightly. And then, like John Newton, you will, you will own the fact that you are a wretch apart from Jesus. And your amazement will not be in yourself, but it will be in God's amazing grace. So look to the law. See that you deserve condemnation. See that you're no better than anybody else. Look at me. People look at me like I'm crazy when I say stuff like this, especially if it's in marriage counseling or things like that. If you're not the biggest sinner you know, you're in trouble. You should be, you are the biggest sinner you know, whether you'll admit it or not, but you should admit it. That's why it's a plank in our eye versus the speck in the other. If you really get God's law, because you know your own heart, we, we lie, we lie to it, we lie to it, but you embrace that you're the biggest sinner you know. That way you can be merciful to those outside. Remember, the legalist wants to minimize the law of God in its own life and maximize it against others. God calls on you to deal with your sin, not to fix everybody else. Your world won't be right when everybody adapts to you. See, the law will do us a great favor. It will keep us humble because we, and the only reason I say that, people outwardly may be worse sinners than you and that's from the of God, but you should be the worst sinner you know. If you're in touch with God's law and in touch with your own heart, you know how far short you fall. So that then you're ready to do this. Number three, look to the gospel. Without the law, the gospel makes no sense. Christ died for sin. What is sin? See, we have to talk about the law because the sin is law. But now look to Christ. See the one who lived perfectly and yet died for his enemies. See the one who should have condemned you, but he died for you. That you might have his grace. 
See him, listen, personalize it. See him suffering for your sin and raising for your justification. See him as your only hope because he is. He made the difference, not you. It's only because of God that you have grace and not judgment. So look to him. Rest in him. This will keep you humble. This will keep you from looking down your nose critically at another. This will keep you from having quickness to cut people off when they cross your way. This is how Paul was exhorting the Gentiles to think regarding the Jews. Not arrogantly, not proudly, but humbly in wonder and awe at God's grace and being walking in gratitude that they had been grafted into the God's promises. They shouldn't be there. They don't deserve to be there. But they are there. The command in this section is do not be arrogant. Do not use God's grace as a platform for pride. But may it produce in us humility so that we grow in grace, so that we're a blessing to those around us, and so that we're light and salt to our neighbors as we go out with the gospel. Peter, in some of his closing exhortations, says this in verse 5 of chapter 5. First Peter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you truly understand the gospel, you will not be proud but you will be humbly rejoicing in God's grace. Now listen to me. And extending that grace to those around you. You will be one who notes the kindness and severity of God, who continues in the kindness and in the grace of God, and who lives in this world growingly like Christ lived, a life of love. Look to Christ. Trust and rest in Him alone in His grace. Seek to walk in the path He has trodden for you, which is a humble path that led Him all the way to the cross. Have His mind set in you so that you might walk in humility and avoid this dangerous pitfall of spiritual pride. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, some of us justify our pride. Help us to stop doing that. Some of us blame it on our parents. Help us to stop doing that. us to truly understand that the severity should have been ours, but Christ, Christ lived for us, died for us, was raised for us, and is reigning for us, and is coming in here, that we might grow in this grace-based humility that will never look down its nose at another. 
Help us to love you because you first loved us. Help us to love our neighbor because you first loved us. Help us to love one another in your church the way that you have loved us. Forgiving one another and bearing with one another and locking arm in arm with one another for the gospel. Deliver us from the pitfall of pride. We pray. Save and sanctify your people. We entrust this to you. It is your word. And we give you praise for it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.